We return to bringing light into darkness. We are visiting with Dr. and Missile Expert Theodore Postel. We rejoin our discussion as Pedro is discussing the multiple kilograms of sarin that was discovered in Turkey well before the August 21st, 2013 El Gota gas attack that almost took us to war. And I remember them finding these two kilograms of sarin in Turkey, the seizure followed a chemical weapons attack in Alakansal that we just mentioned. And so I guess clearly two months, three, this is back in May, you know, that this occurred. This is what, three months before August. And this is well known. I saw it, doctor. I was reporting it on the show when they busted and, and found those two kilograms of sarin in Turkey and busted those guys and the precursor chemicals they found there too and those that's that sort of thing so the idea that they had no capabilities is really more than unbelievable i mean you know certainly our intelligence is a billions and billions of dollars of money isn't it if someone like me knows and found that sarin story i'm sure they were well aware of it as well i'm not saying that's who did it but who has the means and method that's a really important question. Well, we, we know, it's a matter of public record, that in March, the Russians tried to warn, I think it was Ban Ki-moon at that time was the head of the Secretary General of the UN. They provided a dossier to Ban Ki-moon saying that they were very concerned about evidence they had come up with, that there was, I don't know what they called it, so sometimes called in the West, kitchen sarin, sarin that's mm-hmm. not made to industrial standards. But the, the Russians tried to get the attention of Ban Ki-moon on that in, in March. Actually, he refers to that in that article. He goes, it also appears to bolster allegations in a 100-page report on an investigation turned over to the U.N. by Russia. The report concluded the Syrian rebels, not the Syrian government, had used the nerve agent sarin in the March, again, the Al-Khanasal chemical weapons attack in Aleppo. And that, it was interesting that Assad, I'm no fan of Assad, but he did invite and wanted and been wanting the U.N. to come for some weeks and months to look into that al gas attack. And they did show up finally. And right when they show up is when this allegedly, after they finally get there, were to believe that, uh, you know, Assad launched this, this gas attack. People have pointed out, not necessarily incorrectly, that the timing of the attack seemed uh, kind of strange. But all of these things aside... I'm not trying to dismiss them. I want to be clear. All of these things aside, the critical, absolutely confirmable claims made by Kerry about satellites, rocket ranges, where they were launched, when they were launched, where things landed, cannot be true. They just cannot be true. And when the Secretary of State goes in front of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee and asks for authority to take military action. It's a serious matter. Mm -hmm. And he should explain how he came to these beliefs. You know, I'm open to it being a mistake, but if it was a mistake, it's a significant, very significant, very serious intelligence failure. And that should be put at the feet, at a minimum, put at the feet of James Clapper, the director of national intelligence at the time. I don't know why we have a director of national intelligence If this kind of nonsense, and I'm choosing that word intentionally, nonsense from the point of view of an informed individual would be put before the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee and used as an argument 
to get military authorization from the Congress. Yeah, very good. You know, in that same hearing, Senator Boxer asked John Kerry, well, I'm going to press just a little bit harder here, John, but Mr. Secretary, if I can, out of all of the different agencies, because I remember in Iraq, sure, eventually the word came down, everyone agreed, but when we found out there was disagreement, to your knowledge, was there any dissent within the various intelligence agencies? And Kerry denies that. And Cy Hirsch reported that there was months later in a couple of his articles. And again, it goes back to that issue. If there was no dissent in the intelligence still, they would have put out an NIE, I believe. Okay, that's just the fact that there must have been, I mean, if you're trying to make your case for war, you have your NIE estimate. That's the way it works. If that's not going to cooperate with you, then you create some other deal. I'm just saying this. It's simple physics that a two-kilometer range rocket cannot reach targets of 10 kilometers. Right. And that's what anybody I'm, who yeah. knew what they were doing, anybody. Right. The fact that there any agency, if any agency agreed with that statement, they all should be shut down doing their job. It's that simple. And I agree with you. All I'm saying is that it's the combination of all of this stuff that even makes it more amazing. Because we almost did go to war. It was just a day or two, what, on the 28th or the 29th of August, the British Parliament voted down going to war. If they would have voted to go to war, then we very likely would have gone to war based on this Kerry presentation that was just two days later. Well, uh, we, you know, we went to war against Iraq based on false intelligence. Right. It still continues. And I think this problem of false intelligence is extremely serious, extremely serious. Well, let me just remind listeners that we are visiting with the distinguished physicist, Dr. Theodore uh, Postel. He's a professor of science, technology, and national security policy at MIT. He, along with his colleague, another a very astute weapons expert, Richard Lloyd, led the unearthing of these contradictions that we're talking about today back following the, the, uh, the testimony and the pr- production of these maps and assessments that uh, w- went forward. I wanted to shift gears a little bit because you also recently gave a talk to the UN Security Council on September 28th, 2020. It had to do with the 2017, I believe it was Sarin, the alleged gas attack in Khan Shekum that again, based on physics and other things you brought forth, I watched the testimony that you presented or the report that you presented, and it was very convincing by the slides that you presented, the physics that you presented, the UN types of handbooks that indicate, you know, how these craters can be, you can determine what angle the the missile came in by certain characteristics. Can you walk us through maybe the three or four major contradictions that you saw in this allegation <clears throat> at that time that led to almost an immediate Tomahawk missile strike of great magnitude? Well, let me just say, uh, I I was uh, talking about uh, the report by the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. It's a support agency that's an arm of the UN, and uh, it produced a report about that attack that, I forget the title of of the talk I gave, but I think it was something like, none of the uh, arguments or evidence are supported by the analysis. Let me read the title, what I think is a title. I think you said, 
it was essentially all the major conclusions of the OPCW report S-1501-2017 are disproved by the evidence cited in the report. <laughs> okay, that, that says it, yes. Uh, and, um, and basically what the follow-on slides do is they show the uh, contradictions that similar, in some sense, some of the contradictions are like what we found with Kerry. Uh, for example, there are three different wind directions that had to occur according to an analysis of the situation at Kun at the time of the attack. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There's only one wind direction at any place at one time. I mean, there was a crater, a real crater, that was allegedly a release point for sarin. I think the evidence is very clear it wasn't a release point, but let's not worry about that. But the wind carried it in a direction that could not have been the case because the weather report for that day indicated the wind was traveling perpendicular to the direction where the sarin was supposed to have been carried. And in fact, if the wind were blowing in the direction that we know from the weather was, uh, was the situation, there would have been many more people killed from sarin exposure if, it, if there had in fact been a sarin release because there was a highly populated area right next to uh, the area where the alleged release occurred. So that's two wind directions. Then there are photographs outside the city of explosive debris clouds, you know, 500-pound bombs, 500 to 1,000-pound bombs that were, according to the U.N. report, dropped on that day. But the problem is that when you look at the debris clouds, the wind is again blowing perpendicular to the direction that the sarin was supposedly carried by the local wind. The problem was it's not just perpendicular, it's perpendicular and the opposite direction of the weather wind. So you had three different directions the wind was blowing, according to uh, the U.N. evidence. Tell me which one it is, guys, and explain how, that's, how you concluded it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's absurd. So, and when you say the U.N., Dr. Postle, you're talking about the OPCW report? OPCW, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. And then you have these debris clouds from explosions that they refer to, which, of course, give you a third direction to the wind. And they claim that they used the line of sight from the camera where the debris clouds were photographed and searched down the line of sight and found three locations where bombs fell, where there were explosive bombs falling. Mm -hmm. Now, the debris clouds were big. So they could only have been created by 500 or 1,000-pound bombs. No way they could have been created by something small. So we know that there was a 500 or 1,000-pound bomb falling at these alleged locations, and the U.N. identified the three locations. And they showed before and after photographs of the three locations. The problem was there's no bomb damage in any of the three locations. The before and after photographs are basically the same. Really no difference. Mm-hmm. So they didn't show the before and after photographs, but the New York Times showed the before and after photographs. So we know what they were and no evidence. Mm -hmm. Then they claimed that this crater that was supposedly the release point of the sarin release was produced by the kinetic impact 
of a bomb filled with sarin. Well, if there had been a bomb filled with sarin, it would have probably created a shallow, might have created a shallow depression on the asphalt road where it fell. It wouldn't have been a real crater. But you would have seen pieces of the bomb all over the place. You would have seen sheet metal. You would have seen the front and back end plates of the bomb. You would have seen uh, the uh, tail fin of the bomb, maybe even a parachute that had failed to open. There was no such debris around the location. None. Zero debris. Well, where did the debris go if there was a sarin bomb that fell? But if you look at the crater, the crater has a shape that is the classic shape from an artillery shell or a rocket artillery shell. It has a, its perimeter. Which is different than a bomb dropped from a plane? Is that the difference? Is, uh... Well, if the bomb was dropped, it, it would not... It, it would not have this tear-shaped rim. Mm -hmm. This is a characteristic of an artillery shell. I can describe, if people want to write me and ask for the, uh, the briefing slides, I can send them. It's explained how this kind of crater is formed. But this crater is classically and unambiguously formed by an artillery shell mm -hmm. hitting the ground, where the front of the artillery shell basically is near the ground, and the aft end of the artillery shell is raised off the ground because the shell has a large length relative to its diameter. And because of that geometry, when it explodes, you get a crater, the rim looks like a tear shape. And the, the, the blunt end of the tear shape is the front of the crater. It's deeper than the rear of the crater. And the rear of the crater points in the direction of the arriving artillery shell. And artillery officers use this all the time. In fact, I included a U.N. manual discussion of what an artillery rocket crater, that the U.N. has manuals for peacekeepers, because if you're attacked while you're in a peacekeeping mission, you want to know where the attack came from. Mm -hmm. So there are U.N. manuals that have this information, and it's a classic artillery crater. Yeah, your testimony also pointed to the fact of these three people with masks being in this deal that if really Saren had landed there, them being so close to the actual event itself, that the masks that they were wearing would be insufficient to have protected them. So there's a... Yeah, they were wearing uh, hospital masks, of, you know, the kind that you wear when you're... Um, for COVID. Uh, when you're on the street, you're worried about COVID, you, yeah. you wear one of these masks. Now, if you're wearing one of these masks and there's a chlorine release... The mask is not going to protect you from the chlorine gas. Uh -huh. It's going to come through the mask. Right. And you'll die mm -hmm. unless you can get out of the way. Droplets are different from gas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the gas, sarin gas, would kill you if you were in that crater. Mm -hmm. and the sarin would be there because if you were doing what these people were clearly doing when you see them photographed, is they were digging around in the crater. Think of sarin. Sarin looks like... And it behaves a lot like water. So think of dropping a few gallons of water, you know, around the crater, uh, you know, as it's produced by a, a bomb that's carrying 50 liters, you know, of sarin or 100 liters of sarin. The ground is going to be wet with the sarin. The upper part of the ground is going to evaporate, and it, it could look dry. It could even be dry. But if you dig in the ground, there'll be sarin below the surface that has not evaporated. Right. When you uncover that stuff, you're dead. It's right. very lethal. Right, right. And, and These guys are in the crater. They're digging around. What, are you kidding? And then, and then they had a picture of like a goat, but you indicated you, you actually zoomed in. A goat. Uh, yeah. 
somewhat near the crater. We know exactly where it was because I have aerial photographs so I could locate the goat exactly uh, relative to the crater. And uh, the goat has the appearance of being poisoned with something like sarin, definitely foaming at the mouth, at the nostrils, very characteristic of sarin. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was sarin, but in fact, we do know that the goat was definitely poisoned by sarin. And the reason we know it is somebody gave samples of hair from the goat to the UN, and they found sarin residues on the goat's the hair from the goat. Now, first of all, you don't know who collected the samples. You don't know how they were handled. You don't know. There was no chain of custody. More importantly, the photographs of the goat indicate that it was dead and dragged to the location. You can see drag marks in the ground very clearly. Yeah, I saw them. And it had a rope around its neck, and the front end of the goat was pointing one way, and the drag marks were behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) maybe... It was really poisoned at the site by sarin, but if you were an honest inspector and, and you saw that, you'd say, we can't use this evidence. This evidence is clearly wrong. It's, not, it's like someone giving you a blood sample from an alleged murder, and you don't know where the blood sample came from. I mean, that's why there's all this concern about the veracity of DNA evidence. Because the DNA evidence is very powerful evidence if it hasn't been tampered with. But if you took the DNA from some other source and planted it, you you can create a false record. And that's what it looks like here. How could anybody defend this kind of analysis? Well, what's interesting to me is that nobody points it out because nobody points it out until somebody that has insights into these types of things actually does the examination. So... If it wasn't for folks like yourself, and now, you know, we're getting reports for some time now that the OPCW had dissenting opinions in the subsequent gas attack in Duma that, yeah. that, that have been repressed. So there is just one after another of these inconsistencies, and I think that's really the major point. I want to make one more important point point that's relative to this discussion. It has to do with the power of the United States as the world's largest military and economic entity in the world today. The influence that we have on the UN is such that we distort their supposed unbiasedness. I return to Robert Perry, who wrote about this, and we've talked about this many times during my time with him. But he wrote an article called Did Al-Qaeda Dupe Trump on Syrian Attack of November 9, 2017. He writes, the broader context for these biased investigations is that the UN and the OPCW investigators have been under intense pressure to confirm accusations against Syria and other targeted states lodged by the West. Right now, the West is blaming Russia for the collapsing consensus behind UN investigations, but the problem really comes from Washington's longtime strategy of coercing UN organizations into becoming propaganda arms for U.S. geopolitical strategies, he writes. The UN's relative independence in its investigative efforts was decisively broken early this century when President George W. Bush's administration purged UN agencies that were not on board with U.S. hegemony, especially on interventions in the Middle East. Through manipulations of funding and elections of key staff members, the Bush administration engineered the takeover, or at least the neutralizing, of one UN-affiliated organization after another. For instance, in 2002, Bush's Deputy Undersecretary of State John Bolton spearheaded the takeover of the OPCW as Bush planned to cite chemical weapons as a principal excuse for invading Iraq. 
OPCW director Jose Mauricio Bustani was viewed as an obstacle because he was pressing Iraq to accept OPCW's conventions for eliminating chemical weapons, which could have undermined Bush's WMD rationale for war. Though Bustani was just re-elected to a new term, again this is back in 2017, the Brazilian diplomat was forced out to be followed in that job by more pliable bureaucrats, including the current Director General Ahmet Uzumku of Turkey, who not only comes from a NATO country but served as Turkey's ambassador to NATO and to Israel. For details, see Consortium News UN enablers of aggressive war. Since those days of the invasion, the game hasn't changed. U.S. and other Western officials expect the U.N. and related agencies to accept or at least not object to Washington's geopolitical interventions. The only difference now, he writes, is that Russia, one of five veto-welding members of the Security Council, again, this is in 2017, he's writing this, is saying enough is enough, and Russia's opposition to these biased inquiries is emerging as one of the more dangerous hotspots in the new Cold War. Back in 2013, Perry wrote, New evidence also has surfaced on how the United States government worked aggressively over the past dozen years to ensure that the leaders of the key UN agencies, including the OPCW, will present findings in ways most favorable to the United States policies. And then finally, this is what allows President Obama, months after Kerry misrepresented the August 21st situation, 2013. In front of the UN on September 24th, 2013, Obama said, quote, The evidence is overwhelming that the Assad government used such weapons on August 21st. This is again to the UN General Assembly. Quote, These rockets were fired from a regime-controlled neighborhood and landed in opposition neighborhoods. It's an insult to human reason and to the legitimacy of this institution to suggest that anyone other than the regime carried out this attack, end quote. Listen, we're, we're about out of time, but I wanted to remind folks that we, we've been visiting with Dr. Theodore Postel, and he's an MIT professor, physicist, missile expert. We've been talking about, really, he just reviewed, you know, 70% of what his talk was to the UN Security Council just at the end of September of last year. And I, I found that report and that presentation to be extraordinarily interesting. I appreciate the fact that you follow your scientific instincts rather than what can get you to be the best liked person in the world type of thing, which uh, surely you're not. <laughs> I like to tell my friends, uh-huh. I have this saying, I say, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. <laughs> That's good. That's very, very good. But listen, Dr. Postal, thank you not just for making yourself available, but you sent me a, a number of things that were very, very, very educational to me to, to take a look at and such. And we will continue to follow your work. I think like any type of investigator, that the, the methods of investigation for in forensics and science are fascinating. And on the flip side, we have had claim after claim after claim, at least in the foreign policy side, of alleged behavior by other nations, but we don't have the types of evidence that is made available to us. And in the past, Robert Perry wrote about it, that you know, when we have evidence, we have not been bashful about sharing it. You, know, you can go back to the, the Cuban Missile Crisis when the Russians were denying that uh, they had any missiles in Cuba. And then we, what was it, Adlai Stevenson, you know, slapped them pictures, you know, right on the table there at the UN, which actually revealed our U-2 photoing 
capabilities, which was uh, apparently a means and a method that we didn't mind sharing because it was so incriminating. And so I think in the absence of that type of incriminating information, it feels like we just don't have that information yet. Let me just comment on that, if I may. Yes, Uh, sure. We are in a a very unfortunate national situation now where many people are concerned about the future of our democracy, and properly so. One of the threats that we all should be very sensitized to as citizens is the misuse of intelligence by political figures, whether they are Democrats or Republicans. I'm not treating this as a partisan issue. And we have seen several misuses of intelligence recently. And what we've seen in the case of the Damascus raid is a misuse of intelligence. No different and no less serious than the misuse of intelligence that Colin Powell engaged in when he made false claims to the U.N. Security Council about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Need to be very careful. We'll have to leave it there since we are out of time. Again, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Postal, and we will stay in contact with you and appreciate your continued work and insights that you provide to us lay people. So thank you for that. Okay, take care. Okay. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Check out the 